but, but Jeff has uh, some unique gifts and a unique story. He, he played ball at UCLA, uh, had his knee drained 65 times, held the record. And they told him, that's it, you're finished. So he played rugby for 14 years. <laughs> Typical linebacker. If you look deep in his eyes, you'll see the word tilt. <laughs> that's true of any linebacker. They're, they're not playing with a full deck. But uh, Jeff had to leave uh, ministry for about seven or eight years because of chronic pain. Sleep, he would sleep about an hour and a half, two hours a night. And uh, he was pretty much finished. And God has done a remarkable work in his life. And uh, he's, a, he's an excellent teacher, an excellent communicator, very authentic. So you'll enjoy Jeff. Well, let's pray here on a Wednesday night as we kick off. Father, we are surprised at times with what life uh, presents to us. But it's not life that uh, presents these things to us that startle us and uh, surprise us and take us back on our heels sometimes. It's, uh, it's your sovereign hand in our lives. Uh, we, uh, we all pretty much, when we were younger, had a plan and kind of sketched out in our minds how we thought life would go. And uh, I don't think there's a guy in here that's seen it go that way. Because your ways are not our ways. Uh, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we're going to be reminded tonight of your sovereignty and the fact that uh, our lives often take turns that we had not anticipated. Uh, we, uh, we at times are surprised by circumstances. A phone call can change our life. Uh, a pink slip can bring all kinds of chaos where we once thought there was security. But your hand rules over all of those events and all, over all of those circumstances. And some of us tonight even are in transition. Some of us uh, tonight are a little bit unclear about what's happening and where we are. We pray that you'll minister to us. We pray that you will uh, encourage us, that you'll remind us tonight that you're in charge and that you have a purpose and that you've got something you're going to accomplish and achieve and all we need to do is just stay very, very close to you. Uh, get our energy level up tonight. We've all had long days. We started early. We've seen... Uh, a lot of us have had appointments all day. We've been dealing on projects, details. We're a little out of gas. We pray that you'll energize us. Make this time worthwhile. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Frisco, Texas for a men's study. Now I have a question for you. How many of you guys five years ago, and you know what you might need to do? Because we got guys back there looking for seats. Some of you guys on the ends, if you can move in a little bit. I know you got here early and you got that aisle seat and it's your seat. <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind, yeah, that'll, that'll help a little bit. Yeah, that's great. That, that's wonderful, thanks. Uh, that opened it up a whole bunch. Um, I, 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 my question is this. How many of you guys five years ago either went to church in Frisco, Texas, or lived in Frisco, Texas, or worked in Frisco, Texas, or had any kind of uh, consistent activity that would bring you to Frisco, Texas. How many guys five years ago were involved in Frisco, Texas? I see 
1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I see 17 hands. Out of probably what? There's at least 20 guys in here. <laughs> so, five years ago, you had nothing to do with Frisco, Texas. Most of you. Yet here we are tonight in Frisco, Texas. Um, and here we are at Stonebriar Community Church, a church which four years ago didn't even exist. Uh, but it exists now, and we're here. Uh, every church uh, has a story. Every church has a beginning. Uh, a church is made up of people. And not only do churches have uh, beginnings, and not only do they have a story and how they came about, but, uh, but the people that are involved in the church all have stories as to how they got involved and how they got linked up and how they got hooked up. Uh, for, for the rest of the fall, we're, we are going to be studying the book of Philippians, an uh, extremely practical book that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And we're going to start our study in Philippians tonight, but we're not even going to turn to Philippians. Because to understand the book of Philippians, you don't start in Philippians, you start in Acts chapter 16. Because Acts chapter 16 tells us the story as to how the church at Philippi began. There's a story of how this church began. Uh, there's a story to how the church at uh, Philippi began. And, and once again, you know, we're, here we are. Every one of us has a story. Uh, every one of us has, uh, has a unique tale to tell about how we got hooked up and linked up here, even if it's your first time. Um, so Act 16 is the background to, to this church at Philippi, and uh, that's, that's where I want to start tonight. Uh, this, this is going to be extremely practical, and I hope that it's extremely encouraging. Because, as I said in the opening prayer, when, when we are young men and we're looking out towards life and we're in our 20s, we often kind of have a thumbnail sketch in our heads of what life's going to be like. But it rarely turns out uh, to be that way. In fact, it'd be safe to say that it never it, it never quite turns out the way that we would anticipate it to be, because that's the nature of life. Um, when we're talking about the Church of Philippi, and, and that's what we're going to be looking at for the fall, um, I got a couple questions. Actually, I got four questions about this church. And, you know, Paul wrote the letter to the Church at Philippi. Paul started the Church at Philippi. Uh, the first question I would have is, how in the world did Paul ever get to Philippi? So we could, we could ask the same question of you. How in the world? Most of you guys, by your own admission, had absolutely nothing to do with Frisco, Texas five years ago. You didn't work here. You didn't live here. You didn't have any friends here. But here you are. How in the world did you get here? Because you're here. You're here tonight. How did that happen? How did that come about? What were the circumstances 
that lent itself in your lives to get you from where you were to, to a place that was nothing but a, a bunch of fields with tumbleweeds rolling across them. How did all this happen? Well, there's, there's, a, there's an explanation for it. Uh, it's different from what happened in Philippi, but it's the same God who's behind both situations. In Acts 16, we're going to answer the question, how did, how did Paul get to Philippi? How in the world did he come to, uh, to start this church? And we're going to see the sovereign hand of God. If you were with us last month when we did the, the short study called Overcoming Overload, one of the principles we gave, in fact, the first principle was that if you're over, going to overcome overload in your life and stress and all the responsibilities and all the things that pull us in so many different directions, if you're going to get a handle on that, if you're going to get any clarity, if you're going to get uh, a life where you live out of priorities instead of out of uh, uh, living off the rebound and reacting, if, you, if you're going to live purposefully, then you have to have a sovereign. That's a foundational principle in life. There has to be someone in your life who's bigger than you are. There has to be someone in life to whom you can go and get wisdom and get direction and get help. Because none of us have got it together. Quite frankly, all of us are in over our heads. Um, a lot of us are clueless. I mean, just look around who's sitting next to you. And pull out a mirror and look at yourself. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm in over my head. Uh, if I was going to rename my ministry, I'd name it Clueless Ministry. Because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Do you? Not much. Now, so I've got to have someone in my life who does know what they're doing and who knows what I ought to be doing and, and who has all wisdom and all truth and all knowledge and all power and who's promised to me that he'll give me wisdom, whatever I need, when I need it. That's a hard deal to pass up. You see. Once again tonight, we're going to see the sovereignty of God in the life of Paul and the life of this church. I'm convinced you can't live without the sovereignty of God. You can exist, but you can't live without a grip on the sovereignty of God and the greatness of God and the power of God and the availability of him and all of his assets and all of his attributes in your life. You can try living without him, but it's a tough way to live. So how did Paul get to Philippi? Well, we're in Acts 16, and we begin with verses 6 through 11. This is Paul's second missionary journey. Three different times he was sent out. Uh, and, and these are all covered in the book of Acts. This is the second time. So he's going to go from Jerusalem, and they're going to send him out to, to get the word out. And the apostles have sent him out, and the council of Jerusalem, and all that stuff, which was in Acts 15. In verse 6, we read this, of Acts 16. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region. I mean, that doesn't mean much to us, does it? Um, Chuck did this a while back when he taught on Paul. So, and, and it makes a lot of sense. There's a reason they put those maps in the back of your Bible. So turn back there. Because you see, geography is important, isn't it? So if you turn back in your Bible, there'll be some maps. And they're, they're going to they're gonna have different kinds of maps. And you know, you're going to find one that is going to pretty much get, look for one that's got the Mediterranean Sea in it, kind of in the middle. 
And then they got countries all around the edges of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. If you go to the right, the far extreme right of the Mediterranean Sea, you're going to probably see Caesarea, and you're going to see uh, Caesarea was where the, uh, uh, the summer palace was. Um, uh, Paul was in prison there for a couple of years. Uh, you'll see Jerusalem. That's Israel. So he was sent out from Jerusalem. Uh, I, I've got a map here that lists these different uh, areas. And in verse 6, he was passing through Phrygia and the Galatia region, the Galatian region, which is up north. And, and you can, you, you'll find that on the map. Um, it's on the north part of, of the Mediterranean Sea. If you, if you go north from Jerusalem and then hang a hard left and keep going a ways, go about an inch and a half, I'd say, you're going to run into Phrygia. Then you go up north and you're going to hit Galatia. Okay? And then verse 7 says, And when they had come to Mycia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. Now, these, don't, these, these towns don't mean much to us. They meant a lot to them. And Now, catch this. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycia, they came down to Troas. And something really wild happened in, in Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. And if you've got your map, if you've got a map in front of you, and you're in Phrygia, and then you're up in Galatia, go to the left, and you'll see Troas. You see it there? See how the Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea, up there in that little, see the Black Sea? Then you see the Aegean Sea? Well, Troas is right there on the coastline. And then they got on a ship, and they went right across that bay to Neapolis. And then they went to Philippi. Now, what was that all about? That's how Paul, that's how Paul got to Philippi. Now, here's what's interesting to me about that. Well, yeah, you know, Paul, Paul founded this church in Philippi. We've got the letter that we're going to study uh, all fall, the, the epistle to the Philippians. What's interesting to me is that Paul had absolutely no plan of going to Philippi. It wasn't in his daytimer. It wasn't on his Palm Pilot. It wasn't on his seven-year strategic plan. But God clearly worked in his life. You see, Paul was going the other direction, yet God intervened. Now, the way the Lord intervened here was that he had a vision. Uh, these things were occurring in the book of Acts. He had a vision, and he was clearly told that... Um, there was help that was needed in Macedonia. Well, Macedonia is to the west. So he concluded, along with the guys who were with him, that this is where the Lord wants us to go. So he heads west. Now, wouldn't it be nice if when you had a major decision to make in your life that you could have a vision, or God would send you a FedEx, or there would be something that concrete 
that would let you know that God is in this. Um, how does God lead us today? How do we determine uh, where it is that we should go? What do you do when you've got some options? I, I remember when we left Little Rock uh, in, in 1990, and, we and, and I, I had written this book, Point Man, and we got all these invitations. I was pastoring. We, we got between three and 400 invitations to come and speak to churches to their men because nobody was doing this. It was a year before Promise Keepers. And we decided with some guys that were close to me, let's set up a ministry. Let's, obviously, God's in this. And, and the question was, well, where are we going to live? Do we want to live here in Little Rock? And I didn't want to live in Little Rock because uh, I'd been there four years, and I always had to make a connection through Dallas. It was not an easy place to get in and out of, and there were a number of nights where I couldn't get home, and I had to spend the night in Dallas. And so when we decided we were going to make this move, we sat down one night, Mary and I, and we said, okay, we're going to do this. Now where are we going to live? And we could locate anywhere. And uh, we were from California, but we quickly decided we didn't want to live in California. Didn't want to, we just didn't want to do it. Uh, there were two places that we liked. And uh, uh, one was Scottsdale, and the other one was Dallas. And um, so we just started talking about what, what would be the benefits of living in Scottsdale versus Dallas. And we just kind of made a running list of pros and cons, pros and cons, pros and And this was really spiritual, how we did this. Um, Dallas came out with more pros than Scottsdale did. I mean, I wish I could tell you we really went through a spiritual process. But we had to make some decisions pretty quick. I'll tell you the other thing. When it really got down to it, we really wanted to come. And now, did we have a vision in the middle of the night? Did we have uh, dreams? It, no. It, we, we just, it just made sense. A, a lot of times, um, the direction that, that God will lead you in uh, is the process of looking at options, using wisdom, uh, getting some counsel. Uh, that's how we decided. And, and one of the main factors was we didn't have a whole lot of money. And, 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 and quite frankly, one of the major factors was housing was cheaper in Dallas than it was in Scottsdale. And, and here's another one. Uh, it's easier to fly out of DFW than it is out of Phoenix. And you cut the country in half. Now you say, well, that's not a big deal. It's a big deal to me. Because I was going to be doing speaking, and I had young kids, and I didn't want to be out any more nights than I didn't have to. That's how we got here. Um, a lot of times, the Lord works through circumstances. A, a lot of times, he works, he'll work through a pink slip. Uh, sometimes he'll work through uh, something that takes us by surprise. Why? Um, and you know, sometimes when you've got options, and you go ahead and you make a decision, and, you, and pretty much it's up to you, you can make the decision, a lot of times you get there, and it doesn't quite work the way that you thought, and you start second-guessing yourself, and we should have done this. That happens all the time. Um, the, the great thing about the sovereignty of God is that... Um, I can say this to everybody in this room as you sit here tonight. Here's a principle. As you're here tonight, God is absolutely sovereign over your present circumstances. He's in charge of them. He's in control of them. Uh, Paul, when he took off from Jerusalem, 
had absolutely no intention of going to Philippi, but that's where he wound up. Think back, and he had some pretty dramatic circumstances. Think back in your life, how did you wind up in Frisco? What were the circumstances that got you here? Some of you guys had a job change. I talked with a guy th this week who uh, was in business and decided he was going to go to Dallas Seminary, and they came down, they had like three days to find a place, and they're looking in Richardson, they're looking in Dallas, and they're looking, and, and they're in a restaurant, in a cafeteria, and somebody's talking to them in line and says, we got to look at Frisco. They didn't know what Frisco was. Never heard of Frisco. Well, and got called an agent. Two days, they bought a house in Frisco. You see, God is sovereign over those circumstances. This church didn't exist four years ago. It exists now. Why? Because God was over some circumstances. Uh, God, was, God had a desire, and God had a plan, and God had ordained from before the foundations of the world to establish a church here. Uh, do, you, do you know that all that that encompasses? Do you know all the people it involves? David Javon told me this week, I think this is right, that there are 2,000 kids here every Sunday, sixth grade and below. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of staffing. Um, how did you get here? Uh, for some of you, like Paul, you'd say, well, you know, five years ago, I, had, I, I didn't have a, a clue in the world what Frisco was. I didn't have any plan, but you're here. Now, something that's interesting is, uh, well, we'll get the rest of the story. Because he finds himself, and God has clearly led him to Philippi. Um, now, what's the significance of Philippi? What's the big deal about Philippi? Let's, uh, let's note verse 12. It says, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Uh, Philippi had an interesting, um, interesting history. It was started a couple of hundred years before by the father of Alexander the Great, whose name was Philip. Uh, the reason he located Philippi where it was is that Philippi sits in the valley between um, in a valley between two mountain ranges that basically divide Europe and Asia. And the primary trade route that ran uh, west-east from Asia, uh, from, from Europe to Asia, was, uh, was Philippi. It, it sat right smack in the middle of between um, the main highway. That's why it was there. Uh, when the Roman Empire got going, they would devise these colonies. Now, the colonies were very interesting because the colonies started as military outposts. The colonies, and they had them all over the Roman Empire, they would take at least 300 Roman uh, soldiers who were retired and their families. And what they would do is they would set these guys out in a colony, and, they, and a colony was nothing less than a mini Rome. They dressed like Rome, they governed like Rome, they spoke the Roman language, they had the Roman food. And you've read about the Roman system of highways. See, it was all connected through these colonies. And one of the reasons, and, and those roads, you can still see the Roman roads that they built today. You can still see them. They had these colonies placed all over the empire, staffed by retired Roman soldiers and their families. And because of the road system, if a problem came up, an insurrection or something, they could get troops up there on the road very, very quickly, but they already had leadership in place. 
there were privileges associated with living in a Roman colony. I mean, they were small little outposts of Rome. Uh, and it was a big deal to leave Rome. So they'd give these guys privileges, as in, if you were in a Roman colony, you paid no taxes, none. That'd get me in a colony. <laughs> right there, that's tax-free income. That's not a bad deal. Uh, you were a Roman citizen, you had the support of Rome. Uh, it, 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 was a, it, it was not a bad deal. They, they were not multiculturalist. They were not interested in diversity. They were not interested in your culture. They were interested in establishing Rome right smack in the middle of your culture, and they didn't give a rip about your culture. They wanted Rome in the middle of your culture, and they wanted Roman law, and they wanted Roman soldiers. The military town, full of leaders. This was the leading city in the area known as Macedonia, which today is northern Greece. That was the significance um, of Philippi. It was strategic. It was, on a major, uh, it was on a major interstate, if you would. Now, here's the third question. Third question is this. This church that started, who were the charter members? Well, th this gets interesting to me because as you read through the rest of this uh, chapter in, in, in uh, Acts 16. You basically come across three people. Uh, you come across Lydia, who is in verse uh, 14. Let's pick up 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to a gate to a riverside. You know, when Paul would usually go to a city, he would make his way to the synagogue. You know why he didn't go to the synagogue here? There wasn't a synagogue. To have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men who were heads of households. They didn't even have that in Philippi. This was not a Jewish town. This was a what town? It was a Roman town. They weren't interested in having a synagogue. They weren't interested in having First Baptist and First Methodist and a mosque. They wanted their deal. Uh, there wasn't even a synagogue. So he goes to the riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, that's another term for a Gentile, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she was just saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So uh, you've got some charter members here of the, of the church. The first members were Lydia and her household. Now, uh, we know how Paul got to Philippi. It says that Lydia was from the city of Thyatira. You know what my question is? How did Lydia get there? Well, we don't know. That'd be an interesting story to find out. But you know what? There was a story as to why she was in Philippi at that particular moment. And she had a home, but she was from Thyatira. That'd be interesting to find out how she got there. You know why she was there? Because the sovereign hand of God had planned that she would be there because he had something that he wanted to happen in her life. He wanted to bring her into the kingdom. And she's down by the riverside. And, and she comes to the Lord, and her entire household comes to the Lord. Now, here's the next one. Oh, by the way, she was an upper-middle-class woman. All right, now here's the next one. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master as much profit by fortune-telling. Here's a girl that's demon-possessed. 
Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say to the girl. He said to the Spirit that was dominating her and possessing her. He said to the Spirit. Um, that's, that's really interesting. So what Jesus did in the Gospels. He turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out at that very moment. Uh, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Uh, these guys understood what had happened because there was a radical change that happened in this, uh, in this woman. Uh, you remember the demoniac that, that scared them all to death? and uh, had, had legion of demons inside of him. And he was cutting himself and terrifying, terrorizing the, the countryside. And people didn't want to get near this guy. And Jesus cast the demons out. And then they said, well, cast us into those pigs. And he did. And the pigs went off the cliff. You can go to Gennesaret today. And you can see those cliffs where they went off, where those pigs went off. And those people got all upset at Jesus. Uh, there was a radical change that occurred in that man's life. And he wanted to follow Jesus, stay with Jesus, and Jesus said, no. No, I got something else for you to do. Uh, there was a radical change that took place in that man's life. Same kind of radical change that took place in this girl's life. And the guys that owned her immediately understood that their ability to make money with her was finished because she was delivered by the power of Christ. Now, you know what's interesting? You go from Lydia, who is upper class, to a slave girl who is lower class. Uh, had no privileges, had no rights. But she's the second one who is delivered by the power of God. So you got upper class, then you got, uh, you got lower class. That's, that's the thing about the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a classless society. Uh, we got to read the rest of the story because we're going to meet the third guy. And what's interesting about him is that he's middle class. Um, so they're upset at Paul and Silas because their prophet was gone. They drag him into the marketplace, in verse 19, before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. They weren't big on Jews, as we've already found out in Philippi. And are proclaiming customs which is not lawful, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. We're Romans. We're not Christians. We're not Jews. We're Romans. These guys are teaching something they shouldn't be teaching. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, I was talking to a guy this week who was robbed. Um, he cashed a check and uh, was going to his car, and it was uh, dark, and, th and three guys saw him. They, they, were, they were looking for somebody. And uh, they came up from this guy behind and just, just about, they beat him unconscious. Uh, somebody found him in, in the parking lot. And uh, he... Uh, I mean, he was cut, he was swollen, he was, could hardly, they kicked him, they, they, they beat him to unconsciousness. 
and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, remember they were beating him with rods, Paul and Silas, they threw them in the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now it gets interesting. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were, were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before... Now you can imagine this. This guy is dead asleep. I mean, he's out. And this earthquake hits. And he figures out pretty quick, this is just not any normal earthquake because not just one or two guys, but all of them are out of their chains. And, and you know, that's on his tail, and these guys play hardball, and they're going to kill him, so he decides, well, I'll, I'll just go ahead and do a swift death here instead of having them torture me to death. Paul says, wait a minute. And he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. Jailers don't tend to do that. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Interesting few days happening here. Paul had no intention of going to Philippi. Had no plans of going to Philippi. Yet God had a plan that he would go to Philippi. Why? Because there were some people at Philippi who needed to hear what Paul had to say. There were some people at Philippi who needed to meet Jesus Christ and have their lives changed. So you've got Lydia, who was coming over from Thyatira. How did she get over there? We don't know, but God sovereignly got her there by circumstances. Were they all positive? I imagine they weren't. Here's a slave girl that's set free from demon possession. Were her circumstances positive? She's a slave. Then you got a middle-class civil servant. He's doing all right. He's, he, he's, he's just showing up every day. He's working. He's a responsible guy. He's not going to do anything to mess around with his 401k or his pension. He's just a guy that's faithful. He's a jailer. He's doing the job. And suddenly, it all falls apart. And what happens? Well, he finds the Lord. See, these guys, these people were the charter members of the Church of Philippi. I, I really wish I could know the circumstance. This, this jailer, what, where did he come from? Or was he a native of Philippi? What about this slave girl? What was her story? Who were her parents? Did she know her parents? Uh, how did she get tied up with these guys that she was enslaved to? Well, where was her home? How old was she? Uh, had she been sexually abused? That was not uncommon in those days. What was her story? Basically, she was, she was a girl basically without hope. Uh, so you got upper class, Lydia. You got lower class, the slave girl. And then you've got a middle-class civil servant with the, with the Philippian jailer. Um, so far, here's what I'm coming up with. Number one, here's my first principle. I already mentioned it. God is sovereign over my circumstances. He was sovereign over Lydia's circumstances. 
He was sovereign over the slave girl's circumstances. He was sovereign over the Philippian jailer's circumstances. Here's, here's another principle. God is sovereign over my geographic location. How did they get to Philippi? I don't know, but they got there. They weren't there by chance. Where do you live? You don't live there by chance. How did you get involved in Frisco? Some of you guys had a job change. Some of you came here by choice. Some of you started a new I mean, I don't know how you got here. Proverbs 16 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Do you realize that as you go through life, there's an invisible hand that's behind you? Are you making choices? Yeah, you're making choices. You bet you are. But there, but there is a sovereign, invisible hand that is behind you. Doesn't make you do things. Here's what's great about him. Sometimes we make great decisions. Sometimes we make good decisions. Sometimes we make decisions that are bathed in prayer, that come from scriptural principles. We, we seek counsel from other godly men. They're great decisions. You know what? God's sovereign over those decisions. Sometimes we make lousy, impulsive, stupid, sinful decisions. You know what's great about God? He's sovereign over, the, over those decisions. I'll guarantee he's sovereign over those decisions in my life. Isn't he sovereign over those decisions in your life? You bet he is. Because he's God. I'll give you another one. God is sovereign over my station in life. Over my station. So where are you right now? See, everybody in America wants to be upper class. No one wants to be upper middle. We all want to be upper because we're Americans. And we want to get to the top. Whatever we're doing, we want to get to the top. Um, so what's your station in life? Are you middle management or are you a CEO? You know, everybody thinks it'd be great to be the CEO. You know, Chuck did a book. I think, it, it, I, I think it's one of the best things he's ever done. And, and everything he does is out of sight. But he did a book a long time ago called um, It Really Impacted Me. <laughs> I can't remember it. It was the one on Ecclesiastes. Is that Living on the Ragged Edge? In Living on the Ragged Edge, he's got a chapter called The Lonely Wine of the Top Dog. Gosh, is that ever great. Because see, everybody thinks, everybody thinks, man, you know, I want to be the CEO. I want to be the president. I want to be calling shots. Oh, really? Really? See, there's pressure up there that you don't know about until you get there. Because it can't be explained. It can't be understood because it's got to be experienced. The lonely wine of the top dog. Because it's all on your shoulders. And you've got to be careful about who you talk to. And you've got to be careful about um, who you share with. Because you see, even your trusted associates a lot out there in the business world. See, a lot of those guys want to be where you are. And in the business world, a lot of those guys don't have a whole lot of character. They don't have a whole lot of morality. They don't have 
uh, some of them any morality. So you see, it's a pretty vicious. See, we always think the top is the best place. Uh, maybe you've been to the top and you're not there now because of a setback or something. You know, a lot of times we think at this place in my life, we anticipate it, I'd be here. And a lot of times we're not there, we're somewhere else. God is sovereign over my present station in life. I want to give you one more. Uh, because I've skipped over something that cannot be skipped over. You guys still with me? Yeah. Are you? Is this making any sense? I mean, is it really? Or are you just saying that to make me feel better? Yeah, you're just saying it, I can tell. There's something that happens in verse 25 that is absolute nonsense. Um, and I'll give you, I told you I was going to give you another principle on sovereignty. I'll give it to you in just a minute. Verse 25 says, but about midnight, midnight on what day? On the day they have been beaten with rods. This guy that I talked to the other day who had been beaten, he's cut, he's got his eye swollen, he's got his jaw puffed, uh, got a broken rib. Uh, guy can hardly move. You're beaten with rods, you're going to have deep lacerations. You're going to have cuts. You might even have some internal bleeding. You're going to have bruises, you're going to have swelling. Not only were they in prison, they were locked up in the inner prison, and they were in irons. But about midnight, that's the kind of day they'd had. How's your day been? But about midnight, now this is unbelievable. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and complaining. And wondering about the goodness of God. Now what it says. Now see, that's what I'd be doing. What would you be doing? But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And this is well. And the prisoners were listening to them. You know what's ironic to me about this? If that were me, here's, here's what I'd be thinking. Okay, Lord. Number one, I wasn't going to come here in the first place. <laughs> I was going to go that way. But you have this, this guy show up and say, come over to Macedonia. So I was obedient, and we changed your plans, and we had to pay a change fee with American Airlines and all that stuff, or the steamship guy, and, and, and we head over. And we come to Philippi because the guy said, come, come to Macedonia, and Philippi is basically the main place in Macedonia. We were obedient. We came. We, 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 nobody's here. We meet Lydia, you know, the slave girl, the whole thing. We're trying to help her out, and then these guys turn on us. We get the tar beaten out of us. I thought you were leading me. I thought you were for me. I, I thought I was in the center of your will. Now, you know what? They were in the center of his will. See, we've got this misconception that to be in the center of God's will means that everything is... Uh, remember that song by the young rascals? Grooving. On a Sunday afternoon. You don't remember that song. Okay. It's on the oldie station. Yeah, I remember, I remember hearing that song when I was in high school. You know, grooving on a Sunday afternoon. You know, you're dri it's like driving in a convertible, sun's out, perfect weather, you got your girl in the car. You just, you just groove. 
See, we think that's what God's will looks like. You're just grooving. <laughs> You're not sick. You don't have angina. Your wife's healthy. Everything. Job's going great. Got plenty of money. Just bought a lake house. Everything's just grooving. <laughs> that must be God's will. Huh. Oh, every once in a while, every once in a while, you hit a, you know, you get a taste of that. Maybe you'll get a stretch of that sometimes. Really, God's gracious. Sometimes he'll allow you, but he can't give you too much of it because it'll turn your heart. What's the old hymn say? Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Here's what I want to know. How in the world can these guys have the tar beat out of them? They're bleeding. Nobody took them to the emergency room. I mean, these suckers are in bad shape, and they're singing and praising God. How? How in the world could they do that? Now, listen, let me just be real honest. Is that what you do? Is that what I do? It's not what I do. All right, here's the principle. And I think this explains why they could sing and praise God at midnight after they'd had the crud beat out of them. Principle is this. They knew that God was sovereign, period. There's the principle. Thomas Watson. Um, you know, Chuck said some good things on Sunday out of Job. One of the things he said, he was talking about suffering and about the place of suffering and the things that Job had learned from suffering. He said something to this effect that, that it's important that we learn, and I'm paraphrasing him, that we learn to, um, to welcome it and to embrace it. How in the world can you do that? Because none of us like it, and none of us want it. Well, you see, the more we get to know our Bibles, the more we come to find out that God, listen, if God is sovereign over all things, and is he sovereign over all things? Absolutely, he's sovereign over all things. All things. Um, then when those things happen to me, there must be a reason, and there must be a purpose, and there must be a good purpose and a wise purpose in this thing happening to me. Let me give you, uh, I'll give you a couple verses on the sovereignty of God. Let me, just, let me just fly through a few of these things, all right? Just a taste. Exodus 4, verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We don't tend to talk about this. Because you see, this kind of makes it tough when we go, well, Wait a minute, are you telling me? Well, I'm just telling you what it says. 
Who makes someone blind? Who does it? According to this, the Lord's behind that. Which is interesting because you go in the New Testament, and in John 9, Jesus encountered a guy who was blind, and he'd been blind from birth. And Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let me ask you something. That man who was blind from birth, did God have a good purpose? Did God have a wise purpose for that man's life? Did he? Yes. For years that man lived blind. Didn't understand, I'm sure, the purposes of God. But did God have something wise and something good that he wanted to use in that man's life? Here we are 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this guy. Second Samuel 12, 15. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. Remember David got in sin with Uriah, uh, had Uriah killed uh, to cover up his sin. Uh, she's got this baby, it's David's baby. The baby is born. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. Who struck the child? The Lord did. I say, we wonder about the purposes of God. See, see, we don't talk about this a lot because it makes us uncomfortable and it makes us question the goodness of God. But the whole point of faith is that, yes, and see, you swing the other way, well, God isn't sovereign over those things, then you've got a bigger problem. There is not this eternal battle going on between God and Satan. Satan is not equal to God. Satan is a tool. Why does God allow us to get into these difficult circumstances? Because he wants to bring good out of the circumstance. So let me get to Watson. You guys still there? You guys go another few minutes? Okay. All right, you got to really ponder this. You really got to kick in on this, all right? You got a power bar or something in your pocket. You, want, you might want to chew it right here because you don't want to miss this. All right, he's talking about the wisdom of God. Watson says, see here the wisdom of God who can make the worst things imaginable turn out to the good of the saints. So what's the worst thing that's happening in your life right now? Watson says, our God is able to take the worst thing imaginable and turn them to the good of the saints. He can, by divine chemistry, extract gold out of dross. You know what dross is? Dross is slag. Dross is, is, is the, it's nothing. It's worthless. Well, you can't get gold out of that. God can. He goes on and he says, oh, the depths and wisdom of God. That's Romans eleven thirty three. It is God's great design to set forth the wonder of his wisdom. The Lord made Joseph's prison a step to his being preferred. There was no way for Jonah to be saved but by being swallowed up. God suffered the Egyptians to hate Israel. And this was the means of Israel's deliverance. Um, he goes on and he says, God worked strangely. Would you not agree with that? See, and, and some of you guys, where you are in your life right now, you're kind of feeling that way. So what am I doing? You didn't plan on being in Frisco five years ago. And, and maybe some of you can relate that you, you, you've come down here and you, and, and, you know, you had a job transfer and it all looked great. And you know what? It's not great. And you think, oh, I thought God was leading me. Well, he was leading me. See, he was leading these guys. 
But see, it doesn't, it, you're not grooving. Why aren't you grooving? Well, because one of the things that God does is that God wants to make us into men. Not just men, he wants to make us into godly men. And the way you make a godly man is that you take him through the fire. You take him through hardship. There's, uh, there's always a price to pay for being used. There's, uh, that's the way it works. Listen to this. God works strangely. He brings order out of confusion, harmony out of discord. You got discord in your life? Maybe in your marriage. See, God can bring harmony there. God often helps when there is least hope. And he saves people in that way which they think will destroy them. Um, now, you gotta, you got to listen carefully here. He says, through indiscreet passion or through emotions, where we're not, we're not checking our emotions and we're upset, we are apt to find fault with things that happen to us. When, which as if an illiterate man or a blind man should find works with a beautiful painting. What he's saying is, when we complain about the circumstances God has put us in, it's like a blind, it's like a blind man criticizing uh, a Rembrandt. We don't understand what God is doing because God is the great architect. He has a purpose. Um, I'll read one more. He quotes, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He, should, he says, shall we be discontented at that which works for our good? If one friend should throw a bag of money at another, and in throwing it should graze his head, he would not be troubled much, seeing that by this means he had gotten a bag of money. So the Lord may bruise us by afflictions, but it is to enrich us. See, if God ever bruises you, it's because he wants to enrich you. If God, Warren Wiersbe used to say, if God puts something in my hand without first doing something in my heart, it will ruin me. We meet many Christians who have tears in their eyes and complaints in their mouths. But there are a few with their, with their music in their hands who praise God in affliction. To be thankful in affliction is a work that is peculiar to a Christian. Every bird can sing in spring, but some birds will sing in the dead of winter. Everyone almost can be thankful in prosperity, but a true Christian can be thankful in adversity. Why were these guys thankful? Because they knew God was sovereign, and God must have a good reason. God must have a wise reason. And then what happened? You got an earthquake, and you got the whole deal with the Philippian jailer. Um, so a guy named William Cowper. He, he's written a lot of hymns. He lived a couple hundred years ago. Uh, he was a guy who uh, had a rough life. He had a difficult life. He struggled with mental illness. He was a strong believer. He had a real gift of poetry. Uh, he was prone to depression. Probably today we would say that he struggled with schizophrenia. There was an imbalance within him that he couldn't understand. He, he, uh, he was up, he was down. Here's a strong believer. We sing his hymns today in the church. He tried to commit suicide on more than one occasion. 
Let me read to you uh, one of his hymns. Read uh, four verses. Listen carefully. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That's the message of the Bible. I don't know anyone who's been greatly used by God who has not been greatly pained by God. Uh, do you know anyone in your life who you admire and who you respect and who you look up to spiritually who's had a life of just grooving? No. Because we become our best when we're in the fire. We become our best when we're in adversity. We become our best when we're in hardship. And the struggle, the struggle when we're in those circumstances that we don't understand and this is where I think we begin to turn the corner. The struggle is to be able to, to get a grip on the emotion, to get a grip on the disappointment, and say, Father, I thank you that you're sovereign. I don't understand this. I don't know how I got here. I can't make any sense out of it. But I thank you that you're in charge. I yield to you, and I praise you because of your character, that you have something good that I can't see. You have something wise that I cannot fathom. I trust you to bring good out of this. You know, Graham, I'm going to talk about you for a minute. I'm sorry, but, but I'm going to do it. One of the, every time I see Graham, the thing that cracks me up about him, Graham Lyons right here, is that uh, and his wife, Nancy, uh, helps me out all the time. She's my assistant and keeps me out of trouble. Uh, Graham has pastored for, what, Graham? 84 years, something like that? A long time. And, but Graham had a stretch, gifted guy, where for not two years, not three years, not four years, not five years, uh, he was out of ministry. A gifted guy. I was with a pastor. Graham, you don't know this. I was telling Nancy this here. I was with a pastor um, in Ohio a few weeks ago. And uh, this guy's going through a real tough time. I mean, a really hard time. And he's in a period of life where he's out of ministry. His income has dropped. He can't seem to get back. He's, and uh, as we were in the car and as we were talking, he was telling me about this two-year period where he... It's like God has withdrawn, and the clouds are all around him. And uh, I said to him, I said, uh, I said, so two years has been going on, yeah. And you know, I'm in my late 50s. And when you're out, 
you know, churches aren't going to call you. I'm, I'm pretty much done. I'm pretty much finished. I said, you ever heard of, uh, you ever heard of uh, Chuck Swindoll? He said, yeah. yeah. I listen to him all the time. I said, you know, Chuck's on all over the country and all over the world, and they get a lot of calls, and they do a lot of counseling and insightful living. I said, I have a friend of mine who is involved, one of the pastors for counseling, and specifically what this guy does is they get so many calls from pastors who are discouraged and hurting. And this friend of mine, uh, he takes the calls, and he ministers to these pastors. He says, no kidding. I said, yeah. I said, you know what's interesting about him? I said, what's that? I said, before he was hired by Insight for Living, he was out of ministry for seven years. The guy says, you're kidding. I said, no. He said, well, seven years. I said, how long have you been out? He goes, two. I said, how do you think he felt at two years? How do you think he felt at four years? How do you think he felt at six years? How do you think he felt at seven years? And how do you think he feels now when pastor's calling and they, they're out and they're hurting and they got broken hearts and they think that nobody can understand what he's going through. And then Graham tells him his story. And suddenly they know there's a guy there who understands. Um, did Graham, did God have a work for Graham to do? Yeah. Was that a tough time? I'm sure it was. It was hard, it was difficult, disappointing. Did God have a good purpose? Yes. Did God have a wise purpose? That's why we praise him. He hasn't forgotten about us. He knows exactly what he's doing. So, Lord, we praise you. We, uh, we're a part of this church. This church wasn't here four years ago. We, we look back over the last four or five years of our lives, and we see your sovereign hand. Some of us got here because we thought some great things were going to happen. And for some of us, some great things have happened. For others of us, it has not been so great. And we have wondered, and we have second-guessed, and we have stayed up at nights, and we have been uh, anxious. Uh, many of us in this room, Lord, have circumstances that are uh, very hard for us to bear. Uh, they, they weigh on us heavily. We wish they could be changed right now. But, Lord, we go ahead and praise you before the circumstances change. We go ahead and trust you before we see them turn around. We go ahead and honor you because you're, you are sovereign and we're here by design. And you're sovereign over where we live and you're sovereign over our circumstances. And you're sovereign, period. And not only are you sovereign, but you're great. And if we're going through this, it's because you're going to bring good out of it. If we're going through this, it's because of your wisdom that's going to accomplish something that couldn't be accomplished any other way. I, I thank you for Franklin Graham, who has been one of the few leaders that has had the courage to stand up and tell the truth about what's going on with these Muslim attackers. They've had to give him added security. He is not welcome in places where he used to be welcomed. But you're pleased with his willingness to stand and tell the truth. And it wasn't all that long ago that his parents were racked with anxiety over him because he was so far from you. And he was so stubborn and so strong-willed. Lord, you made him that way. 
And then you got into a place where he yielded to you and you tempered that stubbornness, but you still needed a strong man. You brought good out of that very difficult situation. We trust you to do that in our lives. You've promised to do it. We live on the promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, men. Appreciate you. See you next week. We'll jump on. Hey, you want to read in advance? Hit Philippians 1. See you next week.